Welcome to Hello Easton PA. I'm your host, Mark Nutting. I'm the owner of Jiva Fitness, an author, business consultant, former actor, dancer, martial artist, superhero, musician, and I love to connect with others. This podcast is a way for me to share the stories of the people I meet in my adopted hometown of Easton, Pennsylvania. Hi, this is Mark Nutting, and today I'm with Jan McGinley, who brought Death Cafe to Easton. That sounds, sounds somehow <laughs> ominous, doesn't it? It sounds like I brought the, like some the plague. cholera or something yeah, right. to Easton. You, know, you brought the Black Plague to Easton. Um, Death Cafe. So, I mean, you know, truthfully, uh, you have held meetings here in uh, Carl Sterner Arts Building, and it was really Ed Eckstein who brought you to my attention. I'd never heard of the Death Cafe before. And so why don't you explain what the Death Cafe is? Uh, the Death Cafe was originally started in Switzerland by a sociologist named Bernard Critaz, who was um, a doctor. Um, and they were places where people could meet and freely converse about the topic of death and grief. And uh, he wanted to bring it into the mainstream conversation because death has never been a popular topic. So uh, about 15 years ago, John Underwood, who was a uh, a British businessman, decided to bring Death Cafe to not only England, but to the world. And he made it his life's work um, to start death cafes all over the world. And as of today, there are 15,000 death cafes in the world. About 8,000 of them are in the United States. I had never heard of a death cafe until I took my end of doula, end of life doula training. And um, I decided I wanted to participate in a death cafe. But when I looked and searched, there were no death cafes within 50 or 70 miles of here. So I decided to bring a death cafe to Easton. So what we do is we meet informally. Uh, we try to keep it to less than 10 people because we don't want people to see it as a meeting. We want people to see it as a conversation. Mm-hmm. And we're just really trying to bring the topic of death into Western culture because Western culture has always been very averse to the realities of death and dying. And um, we're trying to change that. The number of people in the meetings and sort of the framing of the conversation is really what differentiates it between uh, just a, a grief, grief support group? Yes, it's not, it's not a, it is kind of a grief support group because grief can be one of the topics that we, you know, that we take on. Because a lot of people have suffered a lot of grief, not just with death, but grief during life, all kinds of changes and endings and uh, so forth. And so there is an element of talking about grief to the, um, you know, to the process. But um, what we're just trying to do is get a conversation going and get people talking about things that they're interested in. We try to inform on green burials and um, different, you know, practices. for the dying and for, uh, you know, for, for burials. Um, we try to get people to, you know, understand that death is really nothing to be afraid of. I mean, it is the last act of our life on earth. It's something that's going to happen to all of us. So why not talk about it and make it less, uh, less a fearful, you know, um, destination than, than what it is, which is the, the final act of a, of a life, hopefully well lived. Yeah, I, you know, I'm just taking that in, and the uh, it is interesting how people converse about death. I guess um, 
you know, it's uh, when particularly, I mean, I've, I, for the listeners, I attended uh, the last meeting you held here in the building, uh, sort of to see what you were doing. And, but it was interesting because I've had my own losses. Uh, we, my wife, Heather, and I moved down here uh, actually to take care of Carl Sterner, who was my, her father, my father-in-law, uh, at his end of life. Uh, the, you know, and, and let me quickly say, not just us, you know, the, her, her sister was very involved for long before we got down here and really went through a, a trauma herself with that. But, you know, since then, you know, also my mother passed away and then six months later, my wife died of uh, lung cancer. And, uh, you know, it, it, to me, it's interesting that uh, people skirt the issues, you know, and, you know, try to make it as pretty sounding as possible, uh, you know, crossed over, you know, you know, when somebody, somebody crosses over. And, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not somebody who needs to have it fluffed up, you know, to, yeah, I guess that is, seems kind of callous, but, um, you know, they died. That's know. why we use the, that's why we use that term in the death cafe. People don't pass, you know, they don't cross over, they die. And I think there's a certain a benefit from approaching it that way, from looking at the reality of the situation. Their life ceases and they die. Their physical life is over. So, um, you know, it's funny because I was reading something the other day and it was something about how when people get married, um, or they fall in love, or they get engaged, and the questions are, oh my gosh, tell me everything. Tell me all about what's happening, and, and how did you meet, and what happened, and everything. And when somebody loses one, uh, someone that they love, there are no questions. There's just, um, you have my deepest sympathy. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry for your loss. That's all you get. And, and those are the times when you really need support the most. You don't need support when you're happy and everything's going gangbusters in your life. Right. right. You need support when you're you're laying on the floor and you can't figure out how to get up. So um, part of the Death Cafe also is recognizing people who are in crisis and trying to get them referred to the right people. To if somebody needs a grief counselor, suggesting that to someone. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because I'm not a grief counselor. I, I do grief counseling for the hospital. Um, because I make a lot of bereavement calls every week, about 50 bereavement calls to people who have lost their loved ones. So I have been trained, you know, to talk to people about grief, but I'm not a grief counselor. So if there are people that have special needs in the group, we try to see to it that they get, you know, that they get the help that they need. So, um, how long have you, uh, had the group? Actually since February. Oh, okay. That's, it's pretty new. Okay. Um, I went through it, <clears throat> my end of life doula training two years ago. I've been a hospice volunteer on the inpatient hospice unit for 13 years. And um, it was during COVID that I just decided I was done with all of my material uh, businesses and um, that I really needed to do something that was going to, you know, speak to my, my heart and, and what I think my purpose is now. So um, I took that training. And um, then last year... Um, started looking for a death cafe, couldn't find one. So I joined the organization and they showed me how to get it started. And, and we did, and we've been very successful. How, how do you get it started? You go to deathcafe.com, which uh, the organization is based in England. 
and um, they tell you, you want to start a death cafe, this is how you can do it. There's a lot of death cafes in Ireland. <coughs> and I, 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 <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. Is that, well, they celebrate you that, you know, they're, they're, okay. all, they're all about the drinking and the dancing sure. and the okay. laughing and the hooting and everything. So um, the Death Cafe is probably <laughs> a physical place, too, and, you know, just going. Well, they Ooh. go to different bars and different bakeries sure. and stuff, so they're, they're very enthusiastic about the Death Cafes in Ireland. Huh. Um, but anyway, you just, um, you talk to Jules, who is, uh, John Underwood sadly passed a few years ago, very unexpectedly at a very young age. So Jules is one of the, is the co-founder of... Um, of Death Cafe, and you can speak to her, and she'll just send you a list of, of um, basically rules. Uh, we don't have any speakers. We don't have any video presentations. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's informal. There's no, yeah. you know, there's no, there's a facilitator, which is the, the the role that I play, and then there are just people in the conversation. So, um, but if somebody wants to start a death, death cafe, that's how to do it. And they are yeah. popping up. I just was contacted the other day by some people who um, are hospice volunteers at Lehigh Valley, and they're looking to do a death cafe in Stroudsburg. So they may visit our next death cafe to just kind of yeah. get a feel for how it's, how it's done. So the idea is kind of taking off. And what really was reassuring to me was that People Magazine did a, an article on a death doula, an end-of-life doula, in April. And you know that when People Magazine is doing an article on somebody or some profession, that it's rapidly becoming mainstream. It's right. no longer in the ether. You know, people are talking about it in dark rooms and in hushed voices, you <laughs> right. know. So, um, yeah, I think it's the time has come. People need these services. Do you, th- do you think it's the... Do you think uh, COVID has brought death so much more forefront than it had been? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, death before COVID was a a neat little package. Somebody died. They were whisked away by the funeral home. You know, you had a viewing, you had a funeral. But the, the visual of seeing hundreds of bodies stacked on each other in refrigerated uh, tractor trailers and watching people that you love die gasping for breath in the hospital was, it was a real reality check. I mean, mm-hmm. it was sort of it was sort of as though, okay, you've been able to avoid death and the the you know, the um the untidiness of it up until this point, but it's everywhere now. It's all around you. And you could be next. Yeah. So, you know, I think it was I think it helped to bring the conversation into the mainstream. Right. If if you you said said that you limit the group to about ten people. Mm-hmm. What happens if you get more? Do you start a second meeting? Um, I think what that hasn't happened yet because I I may ask people to let me know if they're coming, mm-hmm. and then I can kind of keep keep the you know the the number at ten. But I think what I did do in the beginning was have a have an evening uh, session as well. But I'm so busy I can't really do that now. My my schedule is such that I really am not available to do that. So I might I might break it up into two tables and let, you know what I mean? Let, right. let two people, two tables of eight people or something, yeah. uh, you know, have a conversation as well. I don't know. I haven't been, I haven't been faced with that yet. Well, after this interview, you'll be, you know, oh, people yeah. will be beating down it's your just door. just so much success. I don't know what <laughs> to do with it. <laughs> yeah. The, um, but it was, you know, and, and truthfully, it was interesting to me to be in that conversation. Um, yeah, obviously, you know, it, you know, I spoke about, briefly about my losses and particularly my wife and 
you know, the emotions still will flare up and it caught me by surprise. Um, and, and I'm sure that's, that's true with everybody, you know, and this, we may have said this, to, you know, in the meeting too, but, you know, uh, I had heard it previously that, you know, the grief doesn't go away. It's just we make room for other things around mm -hmm. the grief that we have. Um, and I think, you know, those conversations were, are important. Um, and it's, you know, and again, you know, whether they're dealing with the grief of a lost loved one or um, death in some other way, you know, that uh, it, it's, it is good to be able to talk those things out. Well, I think people don't understand that every loss, every ending, every loss, every painful experience we have in life is a preparation in some way for our deaths. Hmm. You know, there's so many kinds yeah. of losses of life, you know. Um, well, when you, I, you certainly, you know, with, with experiencing that, you certainly see more of what it really is, and it's a little less mysterious. Yeah. I've lost, you know, periods in my life that have ended, um, which were devastating to me. People who have died. My younger brother just died two years ago from lung cancer. And... Um, Every, there are so many losses and there's so much grief in this life that we mm -hmm. should be, we should look at that as preparation. Everything that we go through and make it through and come out the other side is preparation for the big loss. But it's not going to be our loss. It's going to be everybody else's loss. So we don't really even have to worry about it. It's the people that are left behind yeah. that have to deal with it. One of the questions you asked um, was, you know, if we believed there is more beyond you know, our, our, our dying, mm -hmm. I almost said passing, um, you know, <laughs> against my own rules. Uh, once we die, if there's something beyond, do you find that people, I don't know, it's tough to ask, it's, it's tough to say exactly what I want here. Um, do you find that people are adamant one way or the other? Well... There's two kinds of people. There's religious people and there are spiritual people. Mm -hmm. The religious people, I think, are pretty adamant, at least in my experience, the people that I've known. They're pretty adamant that there is a heaven and this is what it looks like and there's a God. And, you know, and I think spiritual people are a little bit more um, open-minded. I consider myself, <clears throat> I am not a religious person. Um, I have never been. And um, I, but I'm a spiritual person. And I'm, but I know enough to know that I don't know anything about what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, I've been with hundreds of people when they've died. Um, and there are strange things that happen when people are dying. Uh, uh, they, they react to people that are, are not in the room or people that I can't see. Um, they light up. They, sometimes before their death, they have a thing called um, terminal agitation, which is uh, they will wake up out of a coma and they'll start walking around their room and they'll want to eat when they haven't eaten in weeks and you know they're talking and they're laughing and within 24 hours they're de they're dead mm. there's just a lot of strange things that happen um and uh i've seen a lot but i still don't know anything um it doesn't really matter to me what happens after i die here it's it's the end of this this physical life and if there's another life in another way if there's a you know an, a life of energy or like I said in the meeting I was talking about um, you know uh, quantum physics and and um, uh, 
biocentrism. These are things that, when I think about them, it makes my brain explode, but I'm t totally fascinated by the concepts that the, the only place that there is time is here on Earth. It's a construct because we need it, but in the universe, a lot of people believe that the past, the present, and the future are all, you know, they're, they're all happening simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And so those, those kinds of theories fascinate me. But I do think it comes down to religious people and people who are, are not religious. The religious people seem to like the party line. And yeah. the, the spiritual yeah. people, or the atheists, uh, I, did, I spoke to a group of humanists at the Humanist Society in Allentown a couple months ago. And they were not open to anything, but you die and you're dead and you're out of here. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little bit more, um, I have more questions than that. Sure. You know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think you can put people into a box, but I, I do think that the people who are religious or a, a certain um, uh, religion go to church, I, I do think they have a different take on things than people who do not participate in organized religion. Yeah. I, th I think it's important to say, too, that however people deal with it and, and their own beliefs... Whatever gets you through your life. Exactly. You know, I don't pass you know. judgment on anybody um, because I uh, my beliefs have changed a lot, you know, in my lifetime. But, um, yeah, the, and the thing about the Death Cafe is people, uh, we want people to be comfortable expressing what their beliefs are without any judgments from anyone else. I mean, none of us really knows. How can anybody say, oh, well, this is the way it is? Nobody knows. Absolutely nobody knows for yeah. sure. Yeah. So why not be tolerant and, and let it be, um, you know, uh, a forum for people to, you know, talk about those things and, and get other points of view and just in, not in a judgmental way, but in a supportive way, just to be heard. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, let's take a little step away from Death Cafe and, and just talk about you. Are, you. are you a local? I have been here since Harry Truman was president. Beat that. Uh, <laughs> I have not been here that long. I told somebody that the other day, and she said, who's Harry Truman? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So okay. there's that. Exactly. Um, my family came to this area in the 1800s. My grandfather started a silk mill in 1917. Hmm. And... Um, McGinley Mills was in business until 2001 when we sold the business. Um, so I am a townie. <laughs> I, I say that qualifies you, yeah. I am a lifelong resident of Easton, except for six years when I lived in Louisville and 14 years when I lived in the mountains. But my, my whole life basically has been spent here, yes. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, and in one, uh, I feel like I've spent many lifetimes here because I have done absolutely nothing that I thought I was going to do. I was an English and sociology major in college, did nothing with either. With, with what aspirations at that point? I had no aspirations. I had to declare a major. Oh, okay. I, I, that was yeah. my problem. I didn't know what I wanted to be because I wanted to be everything. I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was 14. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to be a social worker. Um, you know, I, I, I just, everything interested me. And it was so hard for me to, I couldn't even come to a major. I had to have a double major. So, and then after all that, uh, when I came back to the area a few years after that, then I started taking design classes at the Northampton Community College. So, um, and then somehow I got involved in doing, I created this profession for myself. Um, I became a long-term color and trend forecaster and a product design and development consultant for several companies. And so I was developing products in uh, 
Europe and South America and Asia for these companies who had products that were all being marketed together into the same market. Mm -hmm. And I did that for 20 years and did some interior design. And then I, I decided to, open, after, when the mill was sold, um, I decided to open my own store in Bethlehem. And so I did that. And then I subsequently also had two other stores. And then um, in 2010, after the debacle of 2008, um, my husband, who was a commercial advertising photographer, decided he wanted to have a winery and a vineyard. So we moved uh, to Schoolkill County to have um, a vineyard and then started a, a wedding event facility in Orfield at, with another vineyard there um, where he still has that business. Um, but then, uh, then I moved back to Easton. We got divorced. I moved back to Easton and, um, you know, figured, well, I'll just, oh, I did, I did uh, do weddings. I did wedding styling and planning and also wedding florals Well, we had that right. business. Yeah. And I did that as a consultant and also had my own business doing, it was called Jan McGinley Style. But um, then I got tired, you know, and I moved back to Easton and then I kind of retired and then I thought, no, I have two speeds. I'm either going at Mach 2 with my hair on fire or I'm dead in bed. So there's no middle ground for me. Yeah. And I couldn't do the dead in bed thing for very long because I was used to moving. So that's when I, I decided to do the end of life dual thing. What, what brings you to that? I mean, you're, I mean was it over, overdoing the weddings? <laughs> my husband used to say weddings and funerals are the, the same event, uh, only with different clothing. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. But, but <laughs> um, that's quite a switch. You really want to know what brought me to that? Sure, yes. It's going to scare you. <laughs> I, I don't think anything can scare oh, me, but go ahead. I think it might. I'm an empath. Okay. I have been empathic since I was a small child. And um, I can feel people's pain. I can feel people's feelings. I'm mm -hmm. very, I can't be in a room full of like 50 or 80 people because I can't take the energy. There's, everybody has energy. And when you are a person who feels other people's energy, it's very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's overwhelming to be in a room when there's a lot of stuff going on. And so all these years that I've been in hospice, I realized, this is how I realized that all these things that have happened to me my whole life were really based in an ability to completely feel someone else's fear, someone else's pain. Uh, I was sitting next to a man one day and I had, I was holding his hand. I have to be holding someone's hand to really feel their physical pain. But I was holding his hand and I, all of a sudden I started having chest pains. And I was like, gosh, am I having a heart attack? And I thought, no, I think this is his pain. So I went out to the desk and I asked one of the nurses what was wrong with the guy in 10, and she said he had a leaky aorta. And I said, well, check and see if he's overdue for his meds. And she did, and she said, yeah. So I went back and I sat with him and I held his hand, and when she put the morphine in his drip, you might want to take this out of your podcast. No, this is good. When they put the morphine in the drip, I felt it go through me. Mm -hmm. It was like this warm tingling. I mean, I've never had... I've had morphine for operations, but I don't know what that would feel like if somebody was taking the drug, uh, you know, morphine, but I felt it go through me. And that's just one of, you know, many, 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 many stories that uh, made well, me realize. Well, you're not the first empath, intuitive I've talked to. Dear, dear friend of mine, uh, shout out to Winter Robinson. Uh, she, she was my first friend who, she's met, was, is a medical intuitive. That was yeah. something I looked into as well because of that. Yeah. And, uh, 
but it puts a lot of pressure on you. Well, it, it took her and her husband a while to break it to Heather and I because they knew where we came from, you know, from a science base. You yeah. Know, where's the proof, you know? Right. Kind of thing. Uh, but jumping back to you, and uh, so as you f sort of realize that's what you are as an empath, why, why go with the end of life? The dying are my people. The dying are your people, okay. I can't, I, I don't know why. I was called, I, I was standing in a store one day and I thought, I have to call hospice. <laughs> I mean, there are several times in my life when I have felt compelled to do something. Mm -hmm. And I've always done it. I mean, I, I felt compelled. Like, where does this, this idea even come from? I have no idea where it came from. But when I have felt compelled to do those things, I have, and it's always taken me on another path. It's just something that, you know, that, that happens in my head. So I called hospice, and I took the training, and I became a hospice volunteer. And so, and I couldn't understand why I was there. I, I, was, I feared death my entire life. My mm -hmm. grandfather died when I was away from home when I was 10. He was the most important person in my life. And so for four years, I couldn't sleep away from home overnight because deep in the, the recesses of my mind, I was afraid that somebody else would die if I, if I stayed away from home overnight. Now, that, that was grief turned to fear. And that's what happens to grief if you don't deal with it. It turns to fear. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened to me. And I feared death. I spent a lot of time thinking about death. I, I remember when I was in high school and college, I would write these poems, and they were dark and about death. And, you know, I mean, it was just... My whole life Which made was, you very popular. You know, was, <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how all that happened. But uh, when I started working with the dying, I, I would sit with them and I would understand where they were. And I would be able... I, the whole thing was to figure out what they needed from me. Mm-hmm. Not what I needed from them, what they needed from me. Sometimes they needed me just to talk to them. Sometimes they needed me to read the Bible to them. Uh, sometimes they needed uh, music in the room. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, I, I, I can't go through all of the, you know, the, the obvious uh, measures, but I have to connect with them so I can understand where they are, what they're going through, and what they need from me. And it makes me so... First of all, it's a very intimate thing to be with someone when they die. I mean, yeah. it's it's a. I think it's like the most intimate thing, except for being with somebody when they're born. But even then, there's five or six people in the room. Sometimes when you're with somebody and they die, it's just you and that person. Yeah. And you feel like you're intruding in a way on this process, but yet, you know, you know that you're helping in some way. And I think there's a certain amount of synchronicity in somebody. I particularly love my older patients because they've lived long, good lives, and now they're having a peaceful, painless death. I don't see the I don't see the um, the horror in that. I see that as a comfort and as just the circle of life. You know what I mean? So, so, so as a death doula, are you you're still working through the hospice? No, I do. I, I work at hospice as a volunteer and a doula, but oh, okay. I have my own private practice. I took my own training. Uh, aside away from the hospital because if I had taken the doula training at the hospital I wouldn't have been able to have a private practice and I wanted to be able to do that as right. well yeah so I, I'm, I'm I have been unaware of the existence of death doulas so is everyone else well <laughs> yeah so a little enlightenment right here uh, but you know I've had hospice at all the three events right. you know that mm -hmm. I've experienced 
but you know that was never mentioned. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, well, Lehigh Valley just created last year a, a doula program for the for the volunteers, and yeah. uh, so that they could go out and spend more time because a hospice volunteer, it's not like somebody goes and stays for four or five hours. You know, the, the hospice program that is provided provides you with a nurse and a social worker and a spiritual advisor if you want one and a doctor and a hospice volunteer but the hospice volunteer may visit two or three times a week for an hour uh when somebody is dying and they're not you know dying right away there's process that they go through and they need uh what i do is provide really i kind of choreograph a plan Mm -hmm. for how you know that the care is going to go i'm a non-clinical uh, you know, component in the end-of-life care. Um, I'm there to support the dying person and make sure that their wishes are followed, but I'm also there to help support the people that are going through it with him. Um, uh, there are projects that we do, like legacy projects. Um, I had a patient who recently died, and she wanted to write letters to all of her friends and her family, so we worked on that together. Um, they might want to do a project where they do a family history um, this one gentleman, I did not do this, but I read about this and I thought it was so sweet. He was a fisherman and he took all of his, um, flannel shirts that he used for fishing over the years and took all the buttons off all the shirts and had the doula, um, get involved in having them all made into bracelets for his granddaughters. Oh, wow. So yeah. there are, there are legacy projects like that. Um, there's care. How do they want the room set up? Who, how do they want people to visit them? Um, you know, do they want music? Do they not want music? I, I'm a very big believer in music at end of life for, for a comfort measure. And I do a clinical aromatherapy as part of that for nausea and anxiety, that sort of thing. Uh, I was talking to um, your friend who was at the Death Cafe about possibly getting together and having her offer, you know, um, massage, that sort of thing. Right. I do this thing called gentle touch. Uh, so there's a lot of components to the care of a dying person. And a lot of times, if there are um, family members who have had struggles with their relationships before someone is dying, those things just get exacerbated. And so you're kind of a, a mediator in some cases between the, the parents and the children and yeah, that I was sort gonna, of thing. I was going to ask whether your, your services were more frequently used with people who don't have people or those, you know, or, or as you're saying, maybe, yeah. you know, those who have a struggle with yeah. family and others. Um, I really haven't had anybody yet that hasn't had any family. Um, but that is, um, that's a distinct possibility. Yeah. I mean, I've only been doing this on my own for about a year now. So um, I haven't had a whole lot of clients. I have, because I only take one client at a time because I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be rushing back between households and uh, I sure. want to create a plan of care and and see see it through. So, how do you reconcile? Is probably not the right word, but sort of pull yourself together. I mean, it, you know, anybody's death is an emotional experience for anybody who's you know mm-hmm. part of the experience, and and uh, how you know it takes its toll. It how, does. how do you? sort of pull yourself together after I miss them you know uh, but I'm not sad for them yeah I'm sad for people who die in their 40s and 50s and teenagers who mm-hmm. die and children who die I can't I can't do children I, I was just gonna ask you no, know I, I, yeah. I cannot do that 
Uh, and fortunately, most children, um, they're just, they, a it's lot of really them are in the need. hospital. They don't need the kind of care that I'm offering. Right. Uh, but uh, for the most part, I'm happy for them. That they had, that I, I'm happy that I got to know them. Um, I just had a, a patient a couple weeks ago who passed. She was 99. She was an extraordinary woman. And I got to know her. And um, her daughter was actually one of my classmates in grade school. And I haven't seen her since I was 10 years old. Mm. And I got to be an end-of-life doula for her. And um, it was an extraordinary, it, it was a wonderful um, opportunity for me to get yeah. to know this extraordinary woman. And then to send her on her way. To yeah. her next adventure, whatever it may be, or maybe yeah. it's nothing. I don't know, but I tend to focus on the quality of their death, and that that I helped. I helped maybe with the fear, or I helped, you know, calm them, or just a, a presence to listen and understand what they were saying, and things things they feel that they can't say to their wives, which I I find, or, or their husbands, which I find very um, touching and yet strange at the same time. Mm -hmm that it's easier to talk to a stranger sometimes about their fears. They don't want to upset their wives. And so many people will not die while their loved ones are in the room. They'll wait till they leave because they don't want to upset them. That's mm. a lot of the, you know, sometimes people wait for people to get there so that they can go. And other times they wait for people to leave the room so they can go without, because they think that, that the act of seeing them die is going to upset their children. Yeah. So it, it's, it's strange, but... Well, you know, and, and it, I just uh, bring my own experience back in when Heather was in the hospital and dying. He, uh, one of my sons, my older son, it, it wasn't something he could do. He couldn't be there when she died. And my younger son made a determination that he was absolutely going to hang with him. And he, he stayed with me for two days with, with her. Mm -hmm. um, but that was, both had different needs, you know, and, and I needed to experience it differently. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and everybody I mean, has to understand there's no game. There's no game plan for for how you're going to grieve or how you're going to deal with somebody's death. You don't know until you get there, you know, and that's why I think people like to come to places like death cafes and have these conversations because everybody thinks, you know, there's what the, there's one of those little lists about the five stages of grief or whatever that that's just bull. It's just that's not the way grief works. Yeah, grief is a it's a. It's it's stealth. You know, it's like stealth. You know, it it jumps up at you at the most unexpected times. You know, and grabs you by the throat. Um, you know, it knocks you to your knees. And how how do you how do you get up? And it happens with no predictability. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it's sometimes you go for days and you don't think about the person, and then all of a sudden you're like, it's just like you're crying. You're crying in your car. And so I think it's really wrong of people to have preconceived notions about how they're going to grieve. And I think that conversations like this help people see that there is no specific way you grieve. You grieve however you have to grieve to get through another day. That's all you do. And you shouldn't feel like you're doing it wrong. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's also interesting because there are a lot of people who tell others you should do, you know, you need to go do this. You need right. to... No, you need to cry. You need to let it out. You need to do whatever. But I, you know, as you as you said, everybody's different, and it, I think probably adding that pressure to them doesn't help. No, you should be doing this. Yeah. Well, that doesn't seem like you I know. want to. And am I doing this wrong? Yeah, my loved one died three years ago. I should be over this by now. What's wrong with me? Yeah. What's wrong with you? There's nothing. You're never going to get over it. Yeah. You're going to go. 
you're going to go through it and, and you're going to get past it, but you're never going to get over it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think people have, have expectations put on them that are completely unrealistic. And that's part of the problem in this culture. Mm-hmm. Everything moves so fast. We're a disposable culture now. You know, nobody buys furniture that lasts anymore because nobody cares about quality. And people just want things. You, you know, when it when it craps out, I'll get a new one, and then I'll get another one, and I'll or I'll get another husband, or I'll get another girlfriend, or you know, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. Yeah. You know, if people are not people in your life, your loved ones are not disposable. You don't get over it. So, I think that's a valuable lesson for everybody to learn. Yeah. It gets better, but it doesn't go away. And you get more adept at dealing with it too. What, um, what else do you think is important for people to know? Have you missed something about death? About death cafe? About death? Think, Any, anything you want to say? I think that acknowledging and embracing the the reality of your death and everyone's death is actually a good way to help you live your life more meaningfully. When you know that there's only a certain amount of time to be had and you don't know what that time is, Mm -hmm. it makes it more important that you do good things with your life, that you do what you can for others, that you help others, that you live a life of meaning, that you live a life of decency and contribution to society. And um, I think it embracing the fact that it's all going to end helps you live a better life and helps helps you get through your life without fear, which I think robs you of a lot of the joy of life. I think fear is, is, is the big crippler. You're afraid to do this. You're afraid not to do that. You know, um, I think that I think fear is, is crippling. And I think trying to, um, deal with it and put it where it belongs, which is over here. Um, I, I just think it's a, it's, it, it informs us and helps us see a better way to live by acknowledging the fact that this is all going to end. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jan, for taking the time and talking with me. And uh, Jan McGinley, <laughs> Death Cafe, and as you know, as a uh, end-of-life doula. Um, it's been great having you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Hello Easton PA. This is Mark Nutting hoping that you'll stop by again to find out more about your fellow Estonians. Have a great day.